Hello and welcome again to Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to round out the book of Philippians. We'll be in the fourth chapter of Philippians and just looking at Paul's encouragement to that church at Philippi and what God is saying to that church and what he may be saying to us today through his word. Well, I thank you for joining us as we continue our journey through Scripture together, trying to grasp what it is God has there for us to hear. Please join me in prayer as we begin this journey together today. Heavenly Father, I do want to thank you for your many blessings. Lord, I want to thank you that we can rejoice in you without it being dependent on what is going on in our world or even in our lives. But Father, with it being dependent on you, your faithfulness, how great you are, and that that never changes. Lord, thank you for giving us that kind of security, that kind of confidence in you that allows us to face every circumstance knowing knowing that you are faithful and being at peace in you. Now, Lord, as we turn our hearts and our attention to your word, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us today through these verses, that you would challenge our hearts, that you would draw us closer to you, convicting us of our sin, bringing us to the point of brokenness and repentance, and a fresh commitment to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your word that we gather to study today. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's turn our attention to the text. Again, we're in chapter 4, and I not going to recap, but you're welcome to go back and listen to some of the previous podcasts related to the other three chapters. They set the stage for where we are right now. Again, Paul is writing from prison in Rome to the church at Philippi, and he's writing to encourage them. They're undergoing persecution. This is not a pleasant time for them. And yet they had sent Epaphroditus with a gift for Paul. Uh, This would have been monetary support to help cover his living expenses, that sort of thing. Um, But they did that to encourage him, to express their love and support for him and his mission and calling from God. And so he's writing back to them to encourage them, to let them know what a blessing that was, but also to encourage them. And he has just come off a discussion in chapter three about pressing on towards the goal that God has set for him, reminding them to not get distracted by those that want to to burden them with the law as opposed to living in the freedom of God's grace, that freedom that actually calls us to be slaves to Christ. I know it sounds weird, but that's the way it works. Now he's kind of shifted gears a little, but he's still talking about living out their faith in Christ in all of their circumstances. Let's pick up in four. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, therefore, therefore, based on what? Well, back it up a little. 
He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. There he sums up the culmination of the gospel, that there is coming a day when the reality of the reign of God is evident to everyone and we experience the resurrection through the same power that resurrected Christ. He's saying, therefore, based on that, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. So the church at Philippi, it holds a special place in Paul's heart. You see in many places in scripture where Paul is talking to those that he had a hand in leading to faith in Christ. Not that he did the work, but that God used him in the process. And he just has a, a deep affection and attachment. Even with Timothy, he, he refers to Timothy as his, his son, spiritually. And, and that that's just such a profound connection for Paul. And now he's expressing that kind of connection to the church at Philippi. Well, he goes on in encouraging them in verse two, he says, now I appeal to Erodia and Syneche. Now you may read that and go, wow, he really mispronounced those names. And you're probably right. But if you're following along in the text, you're going to say, oh, okay, that's them. Um, if you're listening, then don't worry about it. I pronounced it flawlessly. Sure. As one of those misnomers, I have people ask me, well, didn't they teach you to pronounce names in seminary? I thought I would learn to pronounce all the biblical names just wonderfully in seminary, but all my professors pronounced them differently from each other. So it, it didn't really help that much. So, you know, that's my only own particular brand of, of butcher these names is Erodia and Syneche. But he says, now I'm appealing to these two. He says, please. Because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. Now, my church folks have heard this before. They, they know that I use this phrase. God gives us everything we need to know in Scripture. He does not, however, give us everything we want to know in Scripture. What do we know about these two? We know they were having a disagreement, and it must have been a pretty significant disagreement if word of it made it from Philippi all the way to Rome, and Paul had to address it. Now, what were they disagreeing about? I have no idea, and neither does anyone else. We're not given that in Scripture. I'm sure it probably had something to do with, I don't know, the color of the carpet or which side of the sanctuary the organ and the piano go on, or something profound like that, as most of our church disputes or disputes within the body when we get down to it may resolve or revolve around being a difference of opinion, not a difference in obedience to Christ. And Paul's kind of pointing that out to him. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but also because it's true. Please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. It is important in the body of Christ that we be pulling in the same direction, that we be unified in our following of Christ. Not uniform, 
unified. God calls us to different tasks. He gifts us with different talents, with different skills, with different spiritual gifts. So we're not all alike. We all have a part to play in the body, but the whole body needs to be functioning together. And when you have parts of the body that start fighting each other, it's destructive and disruptive. It keeps the forward progress from happening. We use an expression for people that are clumsy. I have two left feet. Well, why wouldn't that work? Well, because if both of your legs are trying to move like their left legs, instead of one being a right leg and one being a left leg, it's not going to work well. You're going to get tripped up. Well, that's the truth of the situation. And here we are in the church at Philippi. Things are going well. He's encouraging them. He has lots of praise for them. And here he's got to call out these two individuals and go, hey, essentially, it's time to knock it off. Please. Now, why? Because you belong to the Lord. We say, but we don't like each other. Too bad. Because you belong to the, but we can't see eye to eye on this issue. Because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreements. And now he goes on. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. He's going, look. They were part of the work. They were there firsthand laboring beside me as we shared the gospel, as we saw God change lives. And now they're arguing with each other. They're having this dispute. It's time to end it. Do we have those disputes in our church life? I will tell you, sitting here at my desk recording this as a pastor, we absolutely have those disputes. And unfortunately, we do not take a biblical approach to resolving them. We don't act in forgiveness and redemption. We tend to not act in in a way that brings about reconciliation and healing. There's usually a whole lot of get mad and leave or get mad and get even because we let our humanity govern us instead of our love for Christ govern us. And the call is clear. These may not be your names, but if you find yourself in the position where you are in the body of Christ, in the church, and you are in disagreement with somebody, and I don't mean you just think it should be done different. I mean, you're in disagreement Fellowship is broken between you. You guys are buttonheads. Then hear the words from Paul as if they were to you. Settle your disagreements. Settle your disagreements. We proclaim the truth of the kingdom of God when we as believers... Don't respond to disagreements the same way the lost world does. 
But when we respond the same way the lost world does, we are no different than them, and we have no message for them to hear. We need to get this straightened out. It is not okay. It's not just the way it is. It is disobedient to God. And it undermines our witness. we got to deal with it. Well, he goes on in verse 4. He says, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. I want to let you chew on that thought for a moment. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. What does he mean? Always be full of the joy of the Lord. He means relish your salvation. Understand your relationship with God as God has described it and take joy in that. That should be that pervasive joy. There's a difference between happy and joy. Uh, The way I've always heard it explained, and I think it's pretty solid, is, you know, happy is usually dependent on your circumstance. Your mood determines, you know, am, am I in a happy mood or not? But joy, joy is a fundamental state of being. It's not about your mood. It's about who you are and how you are. It is pervasive. You may be sad, but still living in joy. I say it again, rejoice. We need to choose to rejoice, to respond to that joy in our lives. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Let everybody see that you take the time to consider what you do and that you consider others in what you do. Be thoughtful. Be thoughtful. Why? Because the Lord is coming soon. There is coming a time when God's justice will prevail. We don't need to live our lives driven by the need for justice or to defend our own interests or any of these things. We trust that into God's hands. And so we live in such a way, or we should live in such a way, that we proclaim God with our joyfulness, with our rejoicing, with the way we live, consider it in all that we do. Verse 6, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Now, does worrying solve anything? Well, we could go to scripture for that, but I don't even think we have to go that far. In reality, have any of us ever solved a problem by worrying about it? Have you ever had an issue resolved because you worried about it enough? I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. It is self-defeating behavior to worry about stuff. Because you're worrying about anything. Even if it's something really important and really big, your worrying about it makes absolutely no difference except to cripple your ability to live your life. Don't worry about it. Now, that isn't just, oh, don't worry about it. Just ignore it. No, he didn't say ignore it. 
He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, and I love this about Scripture. I pointed it out before. Scripture is wonderful. When God calls us to leave something, to stop something, to avoid something, he always gives us something else in its place. Don't worry about anything. Instead, instead, there's something else here. Pray about everything. Yeah. Really? That, that's it? Pray about everything? Yeah. Develop the habit of being in constant communication with God. And when something crosses your mind or your heart that brings concern, take those concerns to the one who can do something about it. Worrying accomplishes nothing in solving the problem. Prayer, on the other hand, can accomplish everything in solving the problem because you're taking the issue, the thing that bothers you, the worry, the concern, the anxiety, you're taking all of that to God, the one who is able. So don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. So you're letting him know of what you need from your perspective, but you're also thanking him because everything he has done, you're responding to. Verse seven, then, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? We love verse 7. That's one of those Philippian verses we latch on to. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard our hearts and our minds as we live in Christ Jesus. And we, we read that and we we print it on plaques and we remind ourselves of it. And it's like, oh yeah, it's awesome. I'm going to experience God's peace. Did you miss verse 6? Because verse 7 starts with the word then. There's something that has to happen prior to verse 7, and that's verse 6. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything, telling God what you need and thanking Him for what He has done. Then you'll experience God's peace. When you quit trying to carry the burdens of this life and this world on your shoulders or the concerns and anxieties and worries of this life on your shoulders and you hand it over to God, trusting in him, it begins to change everything. And it will put you in a position to where you're going to experience God's peace. And it's going to go past anything you understand. And his peace is going to guard our hearts and minds as we live in Christ. Why? Because we don't have to worry about any of that other stuff. It's in his hands because we, we let go of it. We quit trying to carry that. And we let the one who is able do it. Now, verse 8. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix 
your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Now, that isn't that God isn't with you anyway, but it means that when you start living out these things and you keep your focus on God instead of on what you perceive as your problem or the obstacle of the day, when your focus is on God instead of fill in the blank, then you're in a position to experience the presence of the God of peace. You can say, but I know, Jesus, I've been forgiven for my sins. And you worry about everything else in life, or you worry about everything that crosses your mind, then you are not experiencing the God of peace being with you. I'm not saying God's not there. I'm saying you are willfully, yeah, it is willful. You are willfully refusing to experience the peace of God. Because in a certain sense, you may be more comfortable with your worry than you are with the idea of truly trusting God. I realize saying that, some of you listening may, may chafe at that a little. You may go, oh, well, wait a minute, Scott. You don't know me, or you don't know me that well. Where do you get off saying that? Hey, I'm just explaining what this passage is talking about. And if you want to experience the peace of God in your life, that peace that exceeds anything you can understand, that peace that guards your heart and mind as you live in Christ, then there's something you got to do. You got to let go of the worry. You can't live in the worry and live in the peace of God. You're going to experience one or the other. And the way you let go of the worry is you hand it off to God. You instead pray about everything, and then you focus on the stuff God says to focus on. Focus on what is true, what is honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. I don't know about you, but when I'm focused on those things, it's hard to be worried. Because when I'm focused on the things of God, when I'm focused on the truth and things that are honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable, I don't find a lot to worry about. When I start focusing on the evil and the dishonest and the, the disreputable and the, you know, when I start focusing on the bad, on the negative, then it's real easy to climb into my own head and camp out there. And when I'm not focused on the God stuff, I'm focused on the man stuff. It gets pretty heavy. It becomes crushing. Because God didn't design us to bear the weight of the world. He designed us to live in relationship with him. And when we don't do that, well, it's just not a pleasant place. Do those things. Then the God of peace will 
be with you. Now in verse 10, Paul begins to, well, as he says, he begins to, to praise the Lord for the church at Philippi. He is expressing his thanks and appreciation to them for their support of him, their encouragement of him. He says this in verse 10, how I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you did not have the chance to help me. Now, or excuse me, not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. So Paul's saying, look, it moves me. I praise God because of your concern for me. You know, and I know you haven't always had the opportunity to express that, but I'm seeing it expressed now, and I'm thankful for that. And it's not because I have need. And he's not saying he doesn't have need, but he said, not that I have, or not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. You know, he just came off of talking about having peace, the peace of God, that he can rejoice always. Why? Because he turns to God in prayer with it. He doesn't worry about it. So I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. What do you think the key to that contentment is? Hmm, could it be trusting God? Yeah. He goes on in verse 12. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, or plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. Now, again, Philippians to me, seems to be one of those books that maybe more than other books, especially the New Testament, with the exception of maybe Revelation, that people just rip verses out of context. One of my pet peeves is Philippians 4.13. I love the verse. I love what it means. I love what Paul is saying and what God is expressing through Paul in this passage. But it just grates against my soul for people to appropriate Philippians 4.13 and say, I can do anything because I've got Jesus. That is not what that passage says. I'm a Christian, therefore I can do anything. No, you can't. Just because you know Jesus doesn't mean you can walk out in the parking lot and pick up a car. And you're going, Scott, that's so dumb. Yeah, I know. But think about it. Have you not heard people apply that passage just about that sillily? Is that a word, sillily? In that much of a silly fashion? How's that? For I can do everything through Christ. What is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about being content in every situation. Why do the situations, whether he's got an empty stomach or a full stomach, or whether he has plenty or little, whether um, you know he's got abundance or, or a lack, 
He can face all of that and he can be at peace. He can be content. What is the secret of that contentment? He just told us. He doesn't worry about it. He turns to God in prayer and he focuses on the things of God that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. And so he knows that the God of peace dwells with him. So he is at peace all the time. Whatever the situation, he has learned the secret, and the secret is God. And so he expresses, for I can do everything, and by everything, obviously based on the verses he just finished, is face every situation. I can do everything through Christ, who gives me strength that he knows that his strength to endure and go through any situation comes from God, not himself. So he doesn't need to worry about the situation. He needs to turn to the source of his strength. And he's saying, that's what I do. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. He's saying, even though all that's true, Hey, you've, you've done great. You've done well by seeking to share with me, sending these gifts. Now, verse 16, as you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I didn't say this, or I don't say this, because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. He said, look, I want to I want to give acknowledgement. I want you to understand your kindness is being rewarded. Because you guys gave. Now, there were churches like Corinth, where Paul makes it clear when he was there, he refused any help from the Corinthians. Well, the difference there between Corinth and Philippi has to do with the hearts and attitudes of the people. For the people at Philippi to give to support Paul in his work is a blessing to them. And they had no issue with it. The people at Corinth were all about the money. It was an affluent city. There was a lot of wealth in the church. There were those that lived in poverty and servitude and those that were wealthy and owners in Corinth. And had Paul allowed himself to receive, if you will, funding, compensation, uh, gifts from the people at Corinth, then that would have bred all sorts of problems and issues in his ministry there. And for those that were used to throwing their, if you will, their financial weight around to get what they want in their normal life, having come into the church, having been redeemed, they might want to fall back into those old patterns of behavior. I know you and I have no idea what it's like to fall back into our old patterns of behavior, but at Corinth, it was a problem. I'm being sarcastic there. Um, Paul didn't want to give them the opportunity because if they were to give a gift, then it carries all sorts of other issues with it. 
So he wasn't going to allow that at Corinth. But here he is praising Philippi for what they do, for the encouragement that they give, for how they have given in the past and currently to support him in his ministry, in his times of need. He goes on in 18, at the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts that you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. That's Old Testament speak there in the temple. Uh, There are several Old Testament passages that refer to sacrifices, uh, God-honoring, rightly given sacrifices before God in the temple, and how the, the aroma of those sacrifices rises up to God is, is the language that it uses and is pleasing, a pleasing smell. Why? It's not the thing itself, but it's what's happening, what it represents. The people turning to him, trusting him, seeking him, obeying him. So Paul uses that same terminology. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of or all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, all glory to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. It's Paul's encouragement to them, Paul's expression of thanks, Paul's reminder to them of where all these blessings really come from. And that as we take part in blessing others, we're taking part in following God's lead in using the resources he has blessed us with to bless others, but also in receiving those gifts. We understand those are a gift, not from the giver, but from, or the individual giving, but from the true giver, which is God. It's an awesome thing. Now we get to the end of the book of Philippians and the fourth chapter of Philippians, Weird how that happens. They they coincide like that. Picking up in the 21st verse, Paul gives his final greetings. And again, this is a standard letter in the first century world. He's following the standard format. And this is just that final greeting, that closing that would go on a letter. He says, Give my greetings to each of God's holy people, all who belong to Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you their greetings. And all the rest of God's people send you greetings too. Specifically, those in Caesar's household. Now, mind you, he is imprisoned in Rome. House arrest. But he's he's in prison in Rome. He does not have his freedom. People can come to him, and people from the church at Rome are coming to him, but also as he talked as he talked previously, he's got guards, he's got you know other servants in the service of Caesar that are coming and dealing with him this whole time he's there. And you know this is Paul; he's not being quiet about the gospel. He is proclaiming the gospel. He is sharing the gospel with all of these folks. And now there is this 
group of believers within the household of Caesar. And they're not just, you know, oh yeah, I believe that, but I'm not going to let it change anything. There's a group of brothers that are serious about following Christ, but in the service of Caesar's household. And so as Paul is writing back to the church at Philippi and encouraging them and giving greetings to them, he's saying, look, the brothers who are with me, that would be Paul's traveling companions that have, have come and are taking care of him and, and working with him. Those who are with me send their greetings. And all the rest of God's people, that would be the church at Rome, send you greetings too. Especially those in Caesar's household. Those that deal with Paul the closest and serve Caesar have acknowledged Christ. And they send their greetings to the church at Philippi. I mean, that's got to be an encouragement. That's like when, when, well, I, I pastor a church in Texas. That's like when we sitting here at a church in Texas hear from missionaries that are serving in other places around the world, maybe places that are not as open to the gospel. And we find out that there are people in places that we would not normally think there would be who have come to know Christ and are actively serving him. And maybe they, they have positions in the government or, or, you know, maybe within different groups within the country that you go, there's Christians there, but the gospel has made inroads there and God has redeemed people where they're at. And we get encouraging word back from them. It's like, whoa. God's doing stuff. Of course, we know God's doing stuff, but when we hear about it, it's like, wow, this is awesome. God is on the move around the world. And he is, by the way. But it's an encouragement to us to hear that. Paul is giving the same type of expression here as an encouragement to the church at Philippi. And I think it's every bit true. But it probably was very encouraging to the church at Philippi to hear that there's a group of people in the household, in the service of Caesar, that follow the Lord and send their greetings to the church at Philippi. And that would have been a great thing for them. And then he closes out with a blessing, if you will, in verse 23. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What a way to end. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, Paul's not saying your, your spirit is separate from the rest of you. But he's saying that out of an understanding that is our spirit that is in relation with God. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What a way to end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do turn to you. And we ask for your help. We ask you to help us to focus on those things that are good and honorable and true. Those things that glorify you. 
the things of your kingdom. And that when we start feeling that anxiety and that worry, that this life seems to desire to produce in us, Father, that we would take that to you in prayer and that we would leave that with you, trusting in you, that we might experience peace, true peace, that we would be in such a position as to rejoice and to be at peace no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. That even when, from a worldly perspective, we are in great need, we're still at peace because we know that you make all the difference. We know that it is in you we can face everything. That it is in your strength that we find our ability to make it through. It's not on us. You are our God of peace. And Father, we thank you for not just believers in our immediate life, but believers around the world that are an encouragement to us when we hear about what God is doing there and in their lives. And Father, we pray that we could be a, an encouragement and a blessing to them in their situation that they would know that we lift them in prayer before you. Lord, we thank you that you give all of us the opportunity to know you, to follow you, to live for you. Father, we thank you for Christ, his sacrifice for us, the resurrection that he promises and that he has shown us and the peace that we find in him. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.